Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Derek Sivers is an author, thinker, and a public speaker. He's been a professional musician, and he's played all over the world to audiences of thousands with some of the most incredible artists. He's a software developer and an early tech entrepreneur who created one of the most well-known and most successful online music distribution platforms around, CD Baby. And he's a good guy. He's also something of an enigma. For someone with such a public profile, he's also one of the most reclusive people I know. And from what I can tell, the coronavirus lockdown has had absolutely zero effect on how he's living his life. Not going out? Already doing that. Derek spent the past five years with a strict policy of no interviews whatsoever. But since that's now changed and he's gone the other direction, I grabbed him for a long overdue chat about his career to date and his forthcoming book, How to Live. From his house in Oxford, where he lives, plays, reads and draws with his son, all offline, this is Derek Sivers. Enjoy. Derek Sivers, thanks so much for joining us on the MTF podcast today. Andrew Dubber, it's an honor. Uh, last time I saw you in person was July 10th, 2007. Um, and yeah, I consider you an old friend, even though we haven't seen each other since yeah. then. So why are you talking to me on this podcast? What's going on all of a sudden? Is this kind of your new thing? <laughs> well, you are in a different category. To me, it's whenever Andrew Dubber has a question, the answer is yes. You know, if you said, <laughs> hey, Derek, will you? I'm just going to automatically say yes, because it's you. Well, that's very kind. But, uh, but it's not just this podcast. No. So in general, I said no to all interview requests for four years, five years, because um, I didn't like the the position of being up on a virtual podium, acting like a know-it-all. I prefer to have the questions, not the answers. Um, if I start acting like I have all the answers to life, then it you know, you, you are whatever you pretend to be. Hmm. So if I act like I have all the answers to life in order to make a good interview, then pretty soon I start thinking I have all the answers in life. And I didn't like the the psyche that got me into. Uh, so that's why I stopped doing interviews for four or five years. Right. Um, then actually a friend, a mutual friend, you know, Arielle Hyatt. Yeah, very well. Um, yeah. She's an old friend of mine that uh, kind of accidentally tricked me into doing an interview. She just called me out of the blue and said, uh, hey, will you be on my podcast? I said, sure. She said, okay, we're recording. <laughs> and went, oh, and she's crap. still doing music PR? Yeah, yeah, cyberpr.com. Um, and uh, so I thought, okay, well now, I guess now I've done a an interview again. So what I've what I'm doing now is using interviews as writing prompts. Hmm. So I try not to repeat myself. Uh, and I use the questions that people ask me in interviews uh, to dive deeper into those subjects. And I end up writing about them more later after we get off the phone. And it'll probably turn into my next book, all these things that I've been talking about the last few months on podcasts. And presumably also because you have figured out that uh, you do know the answers and, and now you're prepared to share them. <laughs> Now that I've uncovered all the secrets of life, I might as well let you in on the secrets. Well, I yes. mean, the title of your new book that you're working on um, sort of suggests that that's the case, right? Oh, not at all. So the book is called How to Live, 
And you'll see, it's a little bit um, it, mocking the format of people that think that they've got the answer because right. each chapter is going to disagree with the previous chapter and it's a blast to write. And uh, yeah, you'll see. But no, I don't uh, think that I have all the answers in life. In fact, I think that there's a difference between truth and entertainment, right? So it's entertaining to have a nice soundbite that can be tweeted. It's entertaining to have a little pull quote, but you should never confuse those things with the truth, mm. right? The, the truth is always more nuanced and situational and well, it depends. Depends who you are, where you are, what's going on in the rest of your life, etc. But that doesn't make for a good soundbite. So no, it's uh, most of what these know-it-alls, including me, put out into the world is really more entertainment than truth. Right. Because, I mean, Derek Sivers' post is not normally uh, a huge, weighty, uh, <laughs> kind of long thing that goes on for, for ages and ages. It's usually sort of this bite-sized thing that kind of it, it kind of goes, have you ever noticed? Here's the real reason. This is the counterintuitive thing that you should do and uh, be happy. And, and that's kind of like in a nutshell, that's how I think of a, a Derek Sivers post as following this kind of framework. Are, are you saying that how to live will sort of uh, go into a lot more sort of complexity or, uh, or is it a series of those that just kind of contradict each other? Um, yeah, you're right. It will go into more complexity and it will also be a series of those that <laughs> contradict each other. Uh, but yeah, I think I learned the hard way that the more you say the more people tune out. <clears throat> like, if you want people to pay attention to what you're saying, you need to be succinct. Right. If if they wish I would have said a little bit more, then I've said just enough. Hmm. Yeah. There's there's an academic equivalent to that in uh, in conferences, which is that nobody is ever annoyed at you for going under time. Yes, Exactly. You notice even when I went on stage at the TED conference, uh, mm -hmm. those talks can be up to 18 minutes. All of my talks were like two and a half to three minutes. Um, I, I mean, I, I was wondering if that was a restriction that was placed on you, actually, or whether that was something that you said, no, no, I don't want the 18 minutes. Give me three. Uh, yes and no. It's a, it's a choice when you submit a talk. You submit a three-minute talk or an 18-minute talk. And so I chose to submit a three-minute talk because, God, I really don't want to talk for 18 minutes. Like, really... I like introducing one little idea in uh, three minutes. The average length of an article on my site is 22 sentences. And yeah, I work hard to craft the idea down to 22 sentences so that it's just no extra fluff, just the minimum necessary to communicate the idea and then send you on your way. You're a hit singles guy. <laughs> so let's start with how you and I kind of met. I mean, I'd heard of you, of course, because 2005, 2006, 2007, you couldn't really do anything about independent music online as I was without hearing about CD Baby. And of course, you were the president of CD Baby. Um, but then, I mean, obviously people can Google the story because you've, you've told it elsewhere. But um, there was a point at which I put out this ebook 
and uh, I sent it to lots of people and, and presumably you included. Um, but you took the step of sending it to everybody who was actually an artist ah, on CD Baby. That's right. 2007, I think it was. But but yeah, you, you sort of got in touch with me and said, I'm sending this to everybody. Is that okay? And I went, well, it's probably going to crash my service as long as you host it. <laughs> That's fine because you've got a lot of people on CD Baby, but uh, was that kind of your first, well, our first proper sort of uh, encounter, I guess? Yeah, for you and I, yes. Um, but I always saw CD Baby as a service for the musicians. Like it wasn't about mm. distributing the music or whatever. I was just trying to help these musician clients in any way I could. I, I, I felt a little bit parental, which is funny because years later I had a real baby and uh-huh. people would say like, Oh, didn't it completely change your life? And, and I would say, no, actually it didn't feel that different from when I had CD baby. I think like what changed my life was at the age of 29, 28, when I started CD baby, um, something in me clicked and all I wanted to do was to just serve those musicians and help them in any way I could. So if it was like, if I read a, a brilliant, uh, ebook like yours. And I'd like, okay, everybody needs to read this. I would just send it to everybody. Or if I heard some tip or advice or whatever I could do to help my musicians, um, I just wanted to help them with no, it wasn't like in some marketing kind of self-serving way to prop myself up. No, not at all. It was just, I was perfectly satisfied with my life and I was just trying to help the musicians any way I could. Have you always been satisfied with your life? No. Um, my years as a professional musician were quite hard. It always felt like an uphill battle. It felt like every door was locked and would require some incredibly difficult metaphorical lock picking to open it. Um, everything was hard. Everything was uphill. But I struggled for years and I did it and I made it pretty good living making music, you know, like bought a house in Woodstock with the money I made touring. And mm-hmm. that's when I started CD Baby as a little hobby just to help out a few friends. And then friends told friends. So I think by the time I realized I had accidentally started this thing, it felt like, you know what? I had my day in the sun. Like I didn't get to be a major rock star, but I was pretty successful by my own definition. And Mm-hmm. If looking back, like, yeah, that was a pretty cool thing I got to do for a number of years. And if I can... Sh- what were the highlights? Oh, God. Uh, age 22, playing guitar for Ryuichi Sakamoto to an audience of 10,000 in Tokyo. Uh, well, every night for a few weeks to audiences of five to 10,000 around Japan. Wow. Um, that was huge. I was like 22 years old. And, I, and not only that, but I was like in the band with Manu Kache, wow. like the drummer for Peter Gabriel and Sting, and then Victor Bailey on bass from Weather Report. And oh my God, like these legends, I'm in the band with them. Oh my God. <laughs> like it was such a thrill. And I was 22. Mm. Um, and then just, you know, uh, quitting my job and becoming a full time musician at the age of 22, like just making a living doing gigs producing people's records, just living in New York City, doing the hustle enough to pay my rent. Like just that in itself, the fact that I was a full-time musician was great. And then learning how to crack the nut of the uh, college university circuit in the U.S., um, that was great to get into that scene and did some amazing gigs uh, by doing that. And just that wonderful wonderful sense of uh, self-sufficiency, you know, like 
I didn't have a booking agent. I was the agent. I didn't have a label. I was a label. I was just learning how to do all of this myself. And yeah, just this great feeling of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, then later built my own store to sell my own thing. And that's what became CD, ba became CD Baby. So yeah, that was just, all of that was just, it was a highlight uh, just from the personal accomplishment and achievement of doing it. Sure. And, and you were at Berkeley, right? Yeah. So I went to Berkeley School of Music uh, from 1987 through 1990, from the age of 17 to 20. So where did the programming come from? Absolute necessity. Uh, I started CD Baby as just a bare bones little HTML site, like the kind of HTML anyone can learn in an afternoon, just some, you know, H1, P tags, whatever, and a simple form that would just send me your information. And I would just do it all manually because I'd only get like one order a week, right? Like it didn't need any automation or programming at first. It wasn't until like nine months later that I started getting four orders a day and then 10 orders a day and then 30 orders a day. And I was still do processing them all manually by hand. And that's when I said, oh man, this is going to kill me if I don't learn to automate it. So just out of sheer necessity, I had to learn programming. Mm. So I went and got a $25 book on PHP and SQL programming. And I just made myself go through the examples and learn just what I had to learn to solve today's problem. I think it's just the best way to learn, you know, like I never could have uh, done well in a university course on computer programming 101. You know, I never would have majored in computer science. It was really just a means to an end to solve my problem of the day, I think is the best way to learn. Is I mean, learning is, is a, a word that I associate with you because, I mean, all of the things that you do have been about or the result of learning something. And did you learn how to learn fairly early on or how, how you best learn early on? No. Um, no, actually, I think everything up until a few years ago, like, you know, since I've seen you last, <laughs> um, everything... Up until the age of 40, even, was only learning as a necessary means to an end, like that programming story, right? Like I, I had to learn marketing in general, like the, the basic holistic uh, global view of marketing um, as an absolute necessity in order to make a living to pay my rent doing music instead of depending on a day job. Um, I had to learn basic HTML in the first place to put up my own website to help promote my music. Like I couldn't afford to pay somebody else to make a site for me and things like WordPress didn't exist yet. Mm. Uh, I had to learn uh, database stuff in order to have a mailing list of the 500 uh, universities that um, were hiring musicians to play on campus. And so I had to learn about mail merge and databases and related tables and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. in order to reach 500 universities, uh, at a go. And, um, yeah. So just all of these things were just absolute necessity means to an end that I had to learn only what was necessary to do what I needed to do. It wasn't until much later, like after I sold CD baby and then I was like kind of retired and had the, uh, like a blank slate for the first time in my life. I didn't even know what I wanted to do next. That's when I started getting interested in just learning in general. Like that's when I started watching TED Talks about whatever and reading books about anything and hmm. learning weird, obscure things that wouldn't have interested me 
two years before that when I was just too busy with everything on my plate. So yeah, all the, the general interest in learning came much later. Everything before that was just necessity. Right. Because there was a time you were churning through books and summarizing them and then putting those summaries online and then, I, I mean, at an astonishing rate. I, mean, I think it only seems like that if you zoom out, like if you look at uh, sivers.org slash book, that's the URL where I keep all of my book notes. There are now something like 300 books there, but that's everything I've read since 2007, uh -huh. you know? So I'm not actually a voracious reader. Um, it's just that it just adds up over time. So it looks like a lot when you see them all like that, but no, I'm not actually a, there are a lot of those people that, you know, read a book every week or even a book every day, or I'm, I've never been like that. So take me from the beginning of CD Baby when you're sort of teaching yourself code to the end of CD Baby when you're sitting on a train listening to a recording of a staff meeting. <laughs> you alone know that final day. Um, sure. So yeah, just imagine a, a simple little hobby. Like I just made my own band's website to sell my CD. Mm -hmm. um, my friends in New York said, actually it was Marco Attesari, who was a musician from Finland that was living in New York City at the time. He was the one that said, hey man, you know that thing you built to sell your CD? Um, could you sell my CD on your band's website? And I went, oh, huh. Um, I guess. Like, that was never part of the plan. It was really just, I built all of it just for me. And then once Marco wanted to do it, well, then a few of my other friends said, oh, hey, man, could you do what, for me what you did for Marco? I said, all right, sure. So pretty soon it was like on my band's website. I had like 10 other musicians mm -hmm. on my band's website. That's when I finally took them off my site, got cdbaby.com and put it there. Um, why baby, out of curiosity? I know why CD, because, you know, the time that it was, but why baby? Um... My girlfriend suggested it, and the domain name was available. <laughs> like, it was literally like, you know, she was like walking through the room. I was like, what should I call this new site? She was like, CD Baby. I went, tick, tick, tick. hey, it's available. Thanks. <laughs> She's like, no problem. Years later, when we broke up, she made me pay her 300 bucks or something like that. Um, <laughs> I think you got a bargain, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a good name. Yeah. Uh, so, then honestly, man, the next like six or seven years were almost a blur because it was one of those classic success stories um, that I can appreciate because everything was so difficult up until that point. But it felt like I had written a hit single. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly every door just opened to me. Suddenly everybody wanted to take my call and suddenly every, you know everybody was pouring my direction and I was getting swamped with people sending me their music and and the next seven years were just like CD Baby was doubling in size every single year. I never did a damn thing to market or promote it. It just steamrolled or what do you call that? Snowballed. Yeah, it snowballed. Uh, and all I did for the next seven to 10 years was just managing the growth and trying to keep it under control somehow. Um, and that's it. It was just a constant state. I was just working seven days a week from like 7 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week. I did nothing else but this one thing to obsession uh, for 10 years. Like I didn't hang out. I didn't relax. I didn't vacation. I didn't do anything but work on CD Baby for maniacally for 10 years um, until the last time I saw you, July 10th, 2007, 
Um, on my way up on the train from London to Birmingham, I listened to a recording that my that was on the server at CD Baby. That was a, a our regular Monday weekly meeting, which I had missed that week, and so we'd always record it for whoever wasn't there. So um, I pulled it off the server, I put it on my uh, phone, and I listened to it in my headphones on the way up to see you that day. And the recording of that meeting was devastating because it was basically a mutiny. Um, and I'm not being overdramatic. It was like, I had tried to do a profit sharing with all the employees, but then it went awry. And so I had to stop it because it was like they were just distributing all of the profits to themselves. And so I had to yank the program, which made them really mad because, you know, basically everybody's salaries doubled for a few months and then stopped. <laughs> so they were really mad about that. Um, and so on July 10th, they held this meeting that was basically just, you know, fuck this guy. We need, we need to get him kicked out of the company. We need to run this company the way we want. Let's get him, we got, you know, let's get him removed somehow. How do we get him removed from the company? And these are like, these are dear friends that like slept at my house that I, and all of that stuff that these were my employees. These were my buddies. And they were like, we'd hung out and these people are trying to get me kicked out of my company, which is impossible because I was the sole owner, you know, they, they kind of missed that point. And, um, God, it was just devastating. And I never again went back. Like, that's when I actually decided to quit CD Baby. It was that day, the day that I saw you last. Um, and uh, I was just feeling done. It felt like somebody that's been working on a novel or a mural or one of those big, long, ongoing art projects. And you finally add the final sentence or the final brush stroke to your painting, and I just kind of felt like, yeah, that's all I have to say. I have no future vision for this thing. Um, I've done everything I wanted to do with it. I'm feeling done with it. And um, yeah, it was as I was feeling that, that three different companies in one week offered to buy it. And I said no to all of them, as I always did. I had always had these offers to buy the company. Um, and I'd always just said no by default. But yeah, after three companies asked in one week, I just kind of spent some reflective time that weekend and thought, you know, maybe I should say yes now. And so I did. And that's that. And uh, the company that you said yes to uh, gave you a big pile of money. And to me, what's interesting is what you then did with that big pile of money. <laughs> well, this was supposed to be a secret. I was never going to tell but then in some interview a year later, somebody asked me a really direct question about like, so what are you doing with that big pile of money? Just drinking daiquiris on the beach? And I said, no, I, I gave it all to charity. Um, I didn't need the money. And he's like, what? <laughs> what? Are you serious? Are you joking? I'm like, no, I'm serious. I, I, I didn't need the money. I gave it all to a, to a charitable trust I set up. And he's like, well, you have to tell me more about this. I was like, so yeah, um, I had to do some soul searching because the company that bought CD Baby offered $22 million, which was way more than I needed, way more than I wanted. In fact, I thought I'd have to be kind of a raging idiot to spend $22 million in my lifetime. Like what kind of fool does that. Um, I don't want Ferraris or gold-plated beds or whatever people do 
I saw this disgusting thing. Have you seen Drake, uh, the Canadian musician? Um, there's like this whole thing that's going around the media now about like Drake is giving like tours of his mansion uh-huh. and his bed alone cost half a million dollars wow. for a bed. And the rest of his house is just as ostentatious. It's just ridiculous. And I, I feel bad for the guy, right? Like, man, that's almost, that's like a mental disorder, you know, to think that you need a half a million dollar bed. So anyway, like I just, I did some soul searching and I just knew I didn't want $22 million. So I, instead, I just structured it in such a way with the help of a a tax attorney where I first set up a charitable trust uh, where all the money is going to go to benefit music education. I transferred the ownership of the company into the trust uh, months before the sale so that when the purchasing company bought it. They bought it from the charitable trust and the entire $22 million went straight into the t- trust and never touched my hands so that it just all goes to charity. And I didn't even have the option of changing my mind or deciding to spend it on something stupid. It's just, mm-hmm. I just wanted to keep it out of my hands. Was there at least a moment where you thought, yeah, but I could just that, that one guitar or, you know, that, uh, that house. No, because CD Baby was already very profitable for the years before I sold it. Right. It wasn't like your classic Silicon Valley startup that hangs out in debt for years until it sells. Like It was profitable from day one. You owned it, right? Yeah. It was just yours. I owned it 100%. I had no investors. And yeah, it had been profitable since the second month I began. Wow. Every single month was profitable. So by the time I sold the company, it was making like $4 million a year, Mm. right? So I had already paid off all debts. My house was paid in cash. Like I had a few million dollars in the bank that was just sitting in the bank, right? Like I, I didn't need this $22 million and I still don't. So yeah, I still don't regret it. Every now and then I stop and think like, well, what if I did have that $22 million now? What would I do with it? And every time I sit in my diary trying to think about that and I, the answer is just nothing. Like I just don't need it. So no regrets. Wow. Let's talk about TED Talks for a bit, because you, you mentioned that you uh, started exploring TED Talks, and then you started giving them. How, how did that happen? Ooh, that was a very deliberate career strategy choice. Um, it's 2008. I sold CD Baby, and I was lost for about a year and a half I didn't know what to do next. I was just a blank slate. I felt like I've peaked. Um, My best work is behind me. Like I'm only 38, but I'm going to go to, you know, my gravestone in 50 years will say he made CD Baby and nothing since, you know? Like I really thought that that was my new reality. Like my best is behind me. Right. And I stayed in that state kind of adrift for a year and a half. and, And I was... Enjoying watching TED Talks back then. I don't anymore, but I did back then just for random inspiration. I found them intriguing and interesting. Um, And it was while sitting on a plane, just reading some little book, that I suddenly like had this bolt of inspiration inspired by one random sentence. It doesn't even matter what, but uh, I was like, oh my God, I know what I want to do. I want to be like a a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy. Like I want Ted to invite me to speak on stage. I want to be one of those people like Seth Godin or Malcolm Gladwell or something that when I write, people want to hear my thoughts. Because 
Till then, I wasn't. I was just the guy that ran CD Baby. Like, people wanted to know me because I ran CD Baby, and they thought maybe I could help their career as a musician. Mm -hmm. But nobody was, like, particularly interested in my thoughts on anything. Um, And so suddenly, this goal made me, like, shoot up in my seat like nothing had up until that point. It made me take action. I started furiously writing a plan for how I was going to do this. Like, how am I going to be better known as a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy. Um, and I, as soon as the plane landed, I started putting that plan into very deliberate action. I started working towards it. I started writing for like five hours every single day, put, posting an article every two days or so, sharing them everywhere I could. Started to look into what it would take to get invited to the TED conference. This is before TEDx. Like TED was just a kind of a once or twice a year, big main stage thing. And it was mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, so I was like, okay, how can I, crack that nut. How can I get into that? And, and yeah, I set out as a very deliberate plan to do that and, and made it happen. So. And what's the trick? How do you become a a Tim Ferriss or a Tony Robbins or a Seth Godin? Oh, wow. Well, these are three, those are three very different, you know, so Tim, Tim's trick was to, um, he always optimizes his actions for, or he used to for, being like remarkable and noteworthy and uh, like clickworthy, spreadworthy. So even things that he had done years before the four hour work week came out, um, like getting some kind of tango award from Argentina or losing yeah. a whole bunch of weight in like, you know, nine minutes or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> he would uh, write those articles and share his work and share the kind of you know, how you can lose a hundred pounds in 15 minutes. Um, he would write those articles in advance, but then didn't release them until his book was ready for sale. So he was like a, a crazy kind of self promoter that way, but waited till his book was for sale and then just did a bunch of random remarkable things to just become this random remarkable guy online. Right. Tony Robbins did his thing through in-person coaching, helping people almost like a, uh, a, a drive through shrink, um, helping people get over phobias in 10 minutes and stuff like that and just became remarkable and noteworthy for getting onto major media, doing that very direct self-helpy thing. Seth Godin uh, has this remarkable um, persistence of writing an article every single day for like the last 30 years or something. He's posted an article every day and shared it everywhere. He used to write for Fast Company magazine and other magazines and posted stuff out there and constantly writing books and just sharing his thoughts by writing. So it's like these different plans. Um, and so of course, yeah, you just, you make your own mix that suits you. But for me, I guess I was following more like the Seth Godin model where I wasn't trying to be a shocking self-help kind of guy, um, or even, um, super interesting like Tim Ferriss. I was just trying to do the Seth Godin idea where I was just, um, finding an interesting angle about things that people hadn't written about and uh, sharing it just through writing. Yeah. So you're one of them now. <laughs> um, in a way, I'm in my own way, it's, I'd like to be. Uh, it's interesting noticing how our role models change, like how our heroes change, right? So for 15 years of my life, all my heroes were musicians Um, But even then, it was interesting to note, like, I didn't want to be Bono. 
I wanted to be Brian Eno. Right. Like I didn't admire the people that had to get on stage every night and put on the monkey suit and sing the same 15 songs every night for two years. I wanted to be more like Brian Eno where every day was like a fountain of new invention and creativity in the studio. That's, yeah, that's who I wanted to be. So it's interesting paying attention to who you admire, who you'd like to be. So then after starting CD Baby, when I made that switch, then for quite a while, my role models became people like Richard Branson. Like, how did he do that? How did he make all these little offshoots of virgin this, virgin that? And it, my own version was I made like CD Baby, then Host Baby, and Promo Baby, and Studio Baby, and Tour Baby. And I enjoyed that kind of branding of a word while providing different services to musicians. Um, I didn't want to be a billionaire. I was just kind of thinking how could I kind of be this serial entrepreneur providing a lot to a lot of people. And then after I left CD Baby, it took me a while to realize, actually it took me years to realize that now my heroes were these authors, like these authors of my favorite books. And by authors, I mean like nonfiction authors writing things like, um, you know, like Daniel Kahneman or Tyler Cowen or these people that would write these interesting books that would blow my mind. Um, that's who I wanted to be now. So that's still kind of the case. My heroes now are still authors and it took me years to realize I think I'm more of an author now. Do you have any programming heroes? Kind of, yeah, but there, a lot of them I don't know their names. I'm in awe of these open source contributors, like just one off the top of my head, his name is Jeremy Evans, who writes in Ruby, making this uh, SQL um, interface, like an object relational manager um, in the Ruby programming language to connect to the SQL databases. And he's just a, an amazing programmer that uh, does everything open source and just everything he contributes to the world. And uh, it's out there for free on GitHub. You can download it, you can improve it. And there are a lot of people like that that are just not nameless, but just not famous and just so humbly out there writing the software that powers all of our websites and computers and often just doing it for free um, in their spare time while they're employed by, uh, while they're, yeah, they're profitably employed by some big company. And in their spare time, they just contribute their work to the world for free. Like those are my programming heroes. Yeah. Interesting. It's it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, I get author, but public figure is something that I find surprising about uh, being an ambition of yours, because I think of you very much as a, a kind of, not an introvert as such, but, but introspective, I guess, and, and somebody who can kind of work in a solitary fashion for a long period of time on something big. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a total introvert. Um, you know what's amazing? Partially because I was living in New Zealand with my kid, but... In the last seven years, I think the the number of days I've spent in the company of another adult is probably something under 20 days in seven years. Mm. Like I live a very, very, very solitary life. Um, there, If you go to sivers.org slash SOSO is an article I wrote about being a solitary socialite where I'll sit in solitude in nature in New Zealand, uh, but email 500 people in a day or talk for nine hours on the phone to uh, 12 different people, 
but all from my remote location. And like, that's my kind of interaction uh, instead of meeting up in person with three people for two hours each. I'd rather like talk to hundreds by email or, or many by phone. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a total introvert, but about the same time that I realized what I wanted to do next after CD Baby, that story I told 10 minutes ago, it went hand in hand with realizing that I like being a little bit famous. I don't want to be super famous. Like, I don't want to be as famous as Tim Ferriss or Tony Robbins or maybe not even Seth Godin. Um, but I really like the little tiny bit of fame I have now because it opens doors where whenever I read a book I love, I always email the author and tell them that I loved it. And almost every time they email me back and are like open to talking with me and meeting with me because I have some kind of public profile myself. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. And then because I have a bit of a profile, um, you know, I hear from 20 to 40 strangers every day, send me an email and introduce themselves. And, you know, often it's like some guy who's, uh, I don't know, whatever, building log cabins in Finland or somebody who's an investor in Uruguay. And I just find such a, an amazing sense of both connection and security. Knowing all these people from around the world is such a nice feeling that it's, if I ever get on a plane to go to Uruguay someday, I've got a list of like 55 people I know in Uruguay just because they've emailed me and introduced themselves. Like That's an amazing feeling. So I like that my profile is just high enough that I meet a lot of cool people. But it's not like I ever, ever get recognized on the street or anything like that. That happens like once every two years. Like somebody goes, hey, you're the guy that did that TED Talk, right? You know, but, um, yeah, that's a really nice level of fame. I, I not only like it, but I would recommend it. Right. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's wonderful. I think everybody should try to get a little bit famous in their field. My dad's a particle physicist, and in his field of particle physics, he's kind of well-known and famous in his little circles. Like, nobody but another particle physicist would ever recognize him, but, you know, those 150 people in the world would. Interesting that you uh, you bring up your dad uh, being a scientist, which I, I kind of get where the sort of the, the brain comes from, I guess, or so you, your, your programming mind or your analytical mind. Tell me about your mum. Oh, um, no, there's nothing to say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, is that where the creative side comes from? No, 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 no. Um, no, uh, I'm very thankful that my parents were basically just kind of laissez-faire, like just left me alone and I just raised myself. Um, uh -huh. So, no, they weren't actually a, a big influence. And, and even, you know, the programming, you say, oh, I see where the brain comes from. But I think programming isn't actually that difficult. Yes, if I was like programming some kind of deep artificial intelligence kind of robotics thing for Google, that would be a different thing. But most programming is just kind of moving text around, you know, like somebody types their name into a form, you save it in a database and you split it by the space character to grab the first word of it and you save that in a separate field. Like it's not, 
it's not really brainiac <laughs> kind of stuff. It's not that hard. Depends on where you're sitting, I guess. If you're uh, if you're someone like me who doesn't do a whole lot of programming, then uh, it's amazing what you can find uh, impressive. Well, it, do you remember how the mixing board in a recording studio used to look overwhelming? Uh-huh. You know, when you see one of those like 32-channel boards and you walk and you go, whoa, you must be like an airline pilot able to, you know, able to run this thing. But as you get to know it a little bit, you just kind of look at one channel and you go, oh, okay. So there, oh, that's just the treble mid and bass frequency. Oh, okay. There's the slider for the volume. There's mute and solo. And it's like, oh, all right. Now you just got 32 of those. Yeah. It's actually not that complicated. It just takes you a minute to wrap your head around it. But then, yeah, all in all, I'd, I'd actually say that learning something like Cubase or um, Ableton Live or doing the things people do with all of their uh, native instrument synths and all that, like that's way more complicated and a much steeper learning curve than like learning SQL and Ruby and JavaScript. Like by comparison, it's way more complicated. Um, so no, I don't, the programming isn't as impressive as it seems from the outside. You know what? That sounds like that would make a really good... Derek Sivers' post about things not being as complicated as they appear. There's got this nice little counterintuitive thing to it and this generalizable thing about the world that you can take away. That that seems like a really nice uh, Siversism, if that's, uh, <laughs> well, if, that's a, if that's a word. I feel this uh, – I do have a thing out there that's, that says uh, what's obvious to you is amazing to others. And I got that from me being amazed with Seth Godin – but then other people being amazed with me. And I'm just not at all amazed with myself. Everything I put out into the world, I know exactly where that idea came from. And then that makes me think about music, that for years, most of the music I made was a very deliberate exercise in like taking this Beatles melody, mixing it with this James Brown beat, mixed with this pop song I heard on the radio last week and I liked the structure or the arrangement of it. And I would just very deliberately take these ingredients, stir them in a pot, put it in my studio, make a thing in a day or two and put it out. And I knew exactly where those influences came from. And then somebody else would hear it and go, whoa, dude, where'd you come up with that? And I think, well, it's easy. It's not obvious, but but to somebody else, it would seem amazing from the outside because they didn't know exactly where I got it from, you know, so... Um, Is writing easy? Hmm. It's not hard, like, you know, like lifting 150 kilograms is hard, <laughs> but uh, it takes time to to keep thinking past the obvious, uh, to keep pushing to kind of... In my songwriting days, I would often write like 25 verses in order to find two good ones. And I would sit for the longest time, like there would be one line, like I'd have six syllables to express a certain thing I wanted to express because the melody already had six notes there. I only had... I could only make these six syllables, and in fact, the the uh, word emphasis, the emphasis of the syllables had to be just such, because the, the melody was already there in place. And I would spend hours 
trying to think of what words can I fit into six syllables to say what I'm trying to say here, because the next line's already in place. I want to communicate this. So the writing I'm doing now is not any different than the songwriting I did for those years. So I do put a lot of labor into it, but it's not hard, you know, it doesn't hurt my brain. It's just, it's just time consuming. I put in the time to, sure, and then the, the, I put in the time to edit it too. So now I'm not matching it to a specific melody, but I'll often say what I want to say in 20 paragraphs of, of thoughts. And then I, I edit it down to the minimum number of sentences I can possibly make it in order to get that idea across. Cause I've just found that it spreads easier that way. It's easier for people to pay attention when you're only asking them to read a one minute thing. I don't expect a lot of people to sit down for 20 minutes and read a 20 minute thing, but a one minute thing, people will read that. So I try to keep my things under one minute. And uh, you mentioned sort of uh, minimalism, I guess, in that. And it's been something that you've talked about in the past, this idea of kind of almost in a Murray Kondo sort of fashion, living in a minimalist style. Is that something that you still ascribe to? Yeah. I don't like having anything I don't need. Sure. Uh, it creeps me out when I go to people's houses that have clutter and stuff around and you know their kitchens are full you open their fridge and it's just full of food i'm like yeah creeps me out it's like have more than i need it just makes me it's like viscerally icky to me so yeah my house looks kind of uninhabited and I'm like right now my kitchen literally my fridge has two eggs in it right now uh there's two eggs and there's a little jar of ketchup that's all that's in my fridge and that makes me happy. Right. That would make me alarmed. <laughs> but I like cooking, so yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And my sister's like that. My sister's house is very, very, very full. Mm. And that makes her feel cozy and homey and comfortable with like her three kids and all of their friends and the two dogs and the house full of stuff and hundreds of books on bookshelves and, you know, just decades of accumulated stuff that makes her feel cozy and homey. Surrounding yourself with your life, I guess. Yeah. And to me, that freaks me out. So, um, <laughs> no, so even like my desktop on my computer is like, it's just literally nothing. Like there's not a single pixel on it. There's just, um, yeah, I'm just like that in every aspect of life and my writing. I just try to absolute minimum necessary makes me happy. And and not to sort of put too fine a point on it. Now you're writing a book called How to Live. Yeah. And that's How to Live? Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. No, I don't prescribe this. No, like, no, I don't ever tell people that they should be like me. Um, in fact, I like it better when they're not. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would be terrible in the debate club, you know, because I don't want people to think like me. Um, I don't want to convince you to my way of thinking. No, um, no, the How to Live book is is just a blast. It's an homage to one of the most creative, wonderful books I've ever read, which is called Sum, S-U-M, by David Eagleman. Uh, its subtitle is 40 Tales of the Afterlives, and it is this amazing format of um, answering the same question in 40 different ways. And you know what it reminds me of? is a Roland poster... You know, Roland, the company that makes synths and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, back when I was at Berkeley School of Music, I had a poster on my wall that was just an advertisement from Roland for one of their new 
effects pedals or rack mount units or something like that. But it said, like the headline was something like, make each note do what it had never dreamed of. And they had, whether it was one artist or 40 different artists, uh, just do like a, an eighth note. You know, it's just the, the circle and the stem and the little flag on it. Mm-hmm. But it was done like 40 times in 40 different styles. So one looked like it was like shiny platinum. The next one was like this kind of twisted charcoal. The next one looked like it was like dripping water. And I loved that poster. And I would keep it on my wall as inspiration whenever I was recording that anytime I uh, would just record myself doing a guitar part or something, I'd think, okay, well, that's one way to do it. What's another way to do it? Like, what's another way to twist this sound? How can I make the drums sound like a cow? <laughs> or how can I take a recording of a cow and make it sound like a drum? Um, I just loved to think of what else could I do? What other creative angle on this have I not tried? And so I'm still doing that to this day in different ways. So, um, yeah, my book, How to Live, that I'm still writing right now and should be done soon, is that, but applied to life philosophy. It's like answering the same question in 27 different ways. Uh, how should you live your life? You know, chapter three has a strong opinion. Chapter four has an equally strong opinion that completely contradicts chapter three. Uh, it's the same as that Roland poster. It's the same as... Uh, the same thing as the same as the book Sum by David Eagleman. It's just, I love this format of making yourself answer the same question in many different ways. I like that. I was, uh, somebody tried to convince me once that uh, music could be essentially reduced to rhythm, harmony, and melody. And that's all that music was. <laughs> and, and all of music was rhythm, it was harmony, it was melody, it was nothing else. And that just did not make sense to me because I think of music in textures. I yes. think of music in, in, in uh, space and, uh, you know, all these different dimensions of it. So I, I really like that idea of here are 40 different ways, you know, at least of thinking about, you know, how to live your life. And you seem to be somebody who changes their mind about not just how to live your life, but where. Oh, God, I change my mind about everything all the time. It, it upsets people around me that get annoyed at how often I change my mind, but I don't mind. Um, it's, I mean, ideally, I would change my mind about something every single day. I love it when a belief that I held yesterday is upended today and reversed. Um, I actively try to do that. I'll, I'll just almost catalog through my beliefs and think, well, which one can I change my mind about today? Um, Does that make writing, uh, you know, putting down what your thoughts are in a sort of a concrete form a problem for you later? Well, no, because I never am trying to find the right answer. Like that's, that's why I don't think of what I'm doing as philosophy so much. Um, I think of it as pop philosophy in a way, but I'm not trying to be like a, uh, you know, I don't know, a Schopenhauer type that's saying like, this is the answer to life. This is what life is. We're trying to get to the truth of things. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm playing, I'm experimenting. I'm thinking, well, how else can we look at it? I'm still doing that Roland poster. <laughs> <laughs> how else, what else can I do to that note uh, that hasn't been done before? Um, so no, like when I'm writing down my thoughts, it's just an exploration. It's, it's really interesting that the word essay. To try. 
Yes, it's the French word uh, essayer, to try. And uh, Michel Montaigne uh, kind of coined it as a term for his writing, that he would write his essays, which meant uh, to try, to try to figure out what he thinks about something today. Yeah, an attempt. That's, that's really nice. So uh, on that note, what happens next? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel that I'm kind of at the end of this kind of 10 or 12 year arc that I've been on. I'm feeling ready to do something very new, but at the same time, I'm feeling ready to take myself more seriously as an author. And by more seriously, I don't mean, you know, a lack of fun and laughing. I mean, more like, um, I didn't really think of myself as an author until just a year or two ago when I realized like, oh, wow, this isn't like a little side hobby. This is my main thing that I love the most. Um, and so I'm planning on doing much more of that and uh, using books as my medium more instead of just random scattered blog posts. So yeah, I guess that's what's next. If anybody listening here wants to go to sivers.org and introduce yourselves, especially actually besides just the fact that it's you and I, uh, like I said, I would say yes to anything you asked. Um, I'm really missing music and musicians. Um, I would really love it if a lot of musicians were to send me their music uh, for me to listen to and just kind of feel more connected to that scene again. And I'm saying this somewhat selfishly because I feel that like 12 years ago when I sold CD Baby, I kind of accidentally got miscategorized as an entrepreneur. People thought that because I had a big exit now that I was you know, an entrepreneur that could tell us something about how to make lots of money. But that never felt like me. And I think I accidentally got sucked into that world for a while. Um, but then I would meet entrepreneurs and I always just felt like, man, I have nothing in common with you people that are talking about how to raise your financing and your angel round of series A, blah, blah, blah. Like it was never about the money for me. I had never had any interest in making money and most entrepreneurs seem to be focused mostly on that. Um, but then I would meet musicians and I go, ah, oh, oh, finally we can talk about creativity and writing and making things and searching for a different angle and like communicating your vague thoughts or kind of putting your vague thoughts into a concrete form and putting your ass on the line and putting your creations out into the world. Like that's... These are my people. This is my stuff. So I still find that I have way more in common with musicians than I do entrepreneurs. So, um, yeah, I really hope to meet the next generation of musicians, you know? Right. On that, finally, uh, I mean, what I guess would be more appropriate as an icebreaker, but we didn't need one of those. Um, it's one of those kind of flight versus invisibility sort of questions. Let's say you could only choose to hear from today forward only music that you have heard before today or only music that you hadn't heard before today, which way are you going? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. The latter. Um, I love my Debussy and I love, you know, well, whatever I could name music I love, but God, no, I would absolutely choose the new music. I'm my favorite, favorite moment is, 
in music is when people combine instruments or sounds in a way that I've never heard before. I mean, that's in general, like what I love about Debussy or Ravel is, uh, as compared to say a Mozart, is the orchestration, the the innovative arrangements. Um, and so I love it. I love being surprised by arrangements. I'm not really into lyrics. And then, so I'm not really into rock bands that are the same old guitar based drums, but Hey, you've got some new lyrics over it. Who cares? I don't, I mean, somebody cares. I don't care. Um, but man, when people combine new instruments in a new way, uh, that I've never heard that's, I just love that. I love that surprise. So yeah, I would choose the music that I haven't heard and, uh, and continue to be surprised. Fantastic. Derek, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Andrew. It's so nice to talk to you. That's Derek Sivers, and that's the MTF Podcast. You can find Derek and everything he thinks, even if it contradicts everything else he thinks, at sivers.org. I'm Dubber. You can find me online at Dubber. Music Tech Fest is, of course, at Music Tech Fest, everywhere you socially mediate. The MTF Podcast is out every Friday, so click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts so you can just get the next one automatically. And you can share, like, rate, and review because it helps other people come across it who might find this sort of thing interesting. I'll catch you next time. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.